Veterans Radio Hour with co-host Ranger Doug. No one left behind. Listen each week as General Grange and his guests address issues faced by veterans throughout their lives. your co-host, Ranger Doug. Welcome to Veterans Radio R 2.0. This is our 24th program, our ninth episode in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by two great guests, Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Mr. Mark Mitchell. They'll introduce themselves in a moment. I'm Ranger Doug. I don't need an introduction because I'm just a dealer in this card game. As we move forward, we'll be talking tonight about what has happened in the war and where are we now. Remember that we're only working from open source material. No one is discussing anything from classified or official sources. We avoid that like the plague. Also, we want to try to avoid giving any of our potential adversaries or enemies any heads up on what the United States may be doing. Therefore, guests may disagree with each other, which is great because it allows the audience to take in a range of perspectives and form their own opinions. We try to provide the best information that we can, and we always stay close to the facts as we know them. We study intently before producing the program. We'd like you to consider subscribing. We're on 12 platforms at least, and you can do so on Apple, Spotify, iHeart, and our own RSS feed, as well as Amazon. Ambassador Butler, would you please introduce yourself, sir? Rich Doug, it's an honor and privilege to be here again with you. Uh, first time on this program, but we've worked together in other places. I am a uh, a 40-year veteran of the State Department. I tried to retire three times before I finally succeeded in 2016. Started my career uh, on the front lines of the Cold War, Finland, Communist Bulgaria, then got pulled into the Balkan conflicts. Uh, so I seem to have, have served in every country where we had U.S. troops at one time or another. And that led to me being put uh, uh, back, called back to Washington to be in charge of um, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for the Iraq surge, 2007, 2008. From there, I had the privilege of going to be the uh, Foreign Policy Advisor to Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. That's the NATO commander, uh, where I traded Iraq for Afghanistan. Two years of that, then I went to Afghanistan. I was there 2010, 2011 with uh, General Austin and U.S. forces in Iraq. And for my last overseas gig, I was the civilian deputy to the commander in Stuttgart, uh, where I spent a lot of time looking east at countries like Ukraine, Poland, and the Baltics, and the Russian threat. And since retirement, I've kind of worked very closely uh, with a variety of organizations providing uh, subject matter expertise on interagency in conflict. Thank you, Ambassador. That's great. And yes, we have worked together, and I've enjoyed every minute of it. Tonight, then, we're joined also by Mark Mitchell. Mark, over to you, please, sir. Good evening, Ranger Doug. It is a pleasure to join you again and to uh, join Ambassador Butler. Ambassador Butler, I think, uh, overlapped in our service in Iraq in 2010-2011, where uh, I served as the uh, combined uh, Joint Special Operations Task Force uh, Arabian Peninsula Commander. I was an Army uh, Special Forces Officer for 28 years uh, after serving after commanding the Fifth Group. Uh, Fort Campbell, uh, moved on to the Pentagon, an office of the Secretary of Defense, then on to the National Security Council as a director for counterterrorism, retired in 2015 from active service, uh, and then returned uh, after a few years in the private sector to uh, OSD as the acting assistant secretary for special operations and low intensity conflict uh, for two and a half years. So, uh, 
lots of time in the field uh, as a soldier and uh, enough years in uh, in the inside the Beltway um, in the Pentagon and White House to decide that I didn't want to do that forever. In the way of Cincinnatus, that's the way a republic expects, although you may have broken the mold, unfortunately. We may have to work on that. So I'll pass the first question then to Ambassador Butler, and that would be, where are Ukraine and Russia now in the war, do you think, Ambassador? Well, yeah, the, the, the news today was uh, the Russians having redeployed uh, all of its uh, you know, conventional ground forces from uh, its its um, failed effort to capture Kiev, uh, and they pulled it back east uh uh, for a what what everybody anticipates is going to be a massive ground assault uh, in the Donbass region. You know the news the news wasn't very good today about what's happening in Mariupol. Uh, that's the last port, uh, the Ukrainian port on the Sea of Azov. It's been a key target by uh, by Moscow to reduce that, which will enable them to have uncontested uh, uh, claim to and access to the Sea of Azov, which, of course, as you know, uh, it, you know it, 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 it was a potential threat if you are, are Russian to their control of the Crimean Peninsula. You know, the, the Ukrainians have been very, very good about not disclosing uh, their battle plans or, or how they were planning to to conduct uh, conduct their operations. Um, they surprised. I'm Look, I, I'm a civilian who spent, you know, a dip diplomat has spent a lot of time working with the military. Um, I don't think anybody outside of those of us who worked with the U Ukrainians over the last 10 years had any idea that the Ukrainians were ready uh, for what Russia intended to do. And this is kind of a personal opinion, and I, I'd love to hear from Mark and, and, and Ranger Doug from you as well, is, is why Moscow gave up the element of surprise, uh, you know, to, to try and take uh, Kiev with a massive with, with a massive strike or usually special operations. I do not know. Pretty much everybody saw it coming, uh, and the Ukrainians were ready for it. Uh, and I think they did a really good job of what I, what 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 the special forces, you know, the military would call uh, military deception. Uh, I think by feigning that they didn't think there was going to be an assault. Uh, I think they were very very much ready for the assault. Uh, and why? anybody, and I'm from New England, why anybody would attack in that part of the world during mud season. This is when the ground is frozen and it hasn't, you know, hasn't dried out enough for, for vehicles to get off the road. I do not know. Uh, advantage went to, you know, small unit tactics. At the same time, uh, Ukrainians very, very legitimately have been trying to, you know, sort of, you know, negotiate. Uh, you know, today, today the, the, their foreign minister says they still are looking for a diplomatic solution for, you know, for this crisis, you know, for this conflict. Russians right now, uh, my assessment is they're in too deep. They've got too much money in the pot uh, for them to blink uh, and, and, t and take what they, you know, what they've got, which is quite frankly, not very much. Um, so I think the next couple of days, we're going to see massive, massive artillery fire killing lots and lots of civilians. Um, the other news today was is more than 5 million Ukrainians have left their country, uh, which makes it the largest you know, refugee crisis by, by a factor of, a, of two or three since World War II. And, you know, with those thoughts, I'd like to pitch it over to over to Mark. Mark, yes, please. How about picking up from there? Thanks, Ambassador. I, I think the Ambassador is spot on a number of the, those key factors particularly with the shift eastward to the Donbass. I want to back up just a little bit. I think the overall situation right now is that the Ukrainians have enjoyed, frankly, a number of tactical victories, uh, if, if not in the traditional sense where they overwhelmed the Russians' uh, forces, but where they have blunted the Russian advances. Uh, particularly around Kiev, as the ambassador noted. 
And, you know, we've seen a massive bombardment in, in Mariupol. Um, and I think overall, it, the Ukrainians have battled at least to date to what I think amounts to a strategic stalemate. You know, the Russians with massively more resources have been unable to achieve their strategic objectives. And now we're seeing an influx of, of aid uh, from Western nations, and particularly NATO and some of the former Warsaw Pact members uh, of NATO, um, sh- adding resources and the United States. And again, that so we're in a strategic stalemate as the, uh, as the Russians uh, reorient on what we've talked about in this program before is, as what I said was their original, their core strategic objective was establishing a, that land bridge um, toward, you know, to Crimea. And that necessarily includes their control of, of the Donbass and, and then uh, further south and west uh, towards Crimea. Whether they're going to be able to achieve that is a is a holy uh, is still up in the air, and I think the the main thing that we've talked about previously, and I want to reiterate, is that uh, Vladimir Putin, whether it be through his own devices or through bad advice from his um, from his general staff, but like other dictators before him has um, has underestimated the capabilities of his armed forces. And the, the Russian armed forces certainly are not the same as the Soviet armed forces of, uh, of the Cold War. And they've, they've proven unable to integrate combined arms and, and to synchronize all those different effects on the battlefield, uh, plus add logistics, and the Ukrainians have have taken advantage of that. And now, as we shift towards a different operational environment uh, in the Donbass, um, there are opportunities and threats for both sides. Those are great comments, Ambassador and Mark. And I've been on every program, so I I will just take a moment to recap some things we've covered that you've touched on because they fit into a a kind of a, uh, a wider fabric. First of all, as a dictator, it appears Mr. Putin has inspired a lot of fear, so people tell him what they think he wants to hear. That combines aspects of mis and disinformation with what people wish that would happen. But also, since the Russian culture appears to be about like what we thought back during the communist era, many of the supplies that normally would be rotated into vehicles and things to keep them fresh have not been applied. And so vehicles that have sat for a long time in logistical areas have shown up on the roads with a few miles to run, and then the rubber breaks down and they stall. Tires fall off, tanks go dead, and they become sitting targets for Ukrainians that pick off the front and rear vehicle and then deal with the rest. They also appear to have not had a very good sense of the intelligence of the enemy, so that when they attacked, they didn't realize the enemy had very carefully laid out kind of a defense in depth. They also appear to have followed some of our tactics of shock and awe, in other words, to try to put various different forces deep in an enemy rear under the idea that these forces were somehow invincible, and they found themselves cut off, cut up, and sent back. Uh, Their logistic trains broke down. They had to recover by a number of means. 
And uh, I believe the Ukrainians did employ deception because while, as Ambassador said, they were busy broadcasting the idea they didn't think the Russians were going to attack. They were busy fortifying and putting teams in place to catch them in a, in a defensive posture and trap them and then ambush them and then drive them back. On the other hand, the Ukrainians have shown a great deal of agility themselves. They're using lots of different media, including social media, to track the Russians so they don't depend on lots of systems that can be tracked. They've proven to be much better at cyber than their Russian foes, which is quite different than what was expected. And as long as they've been fighting defensive battles or limited counterattacks, limited offensive actions, in other words, they've been able to survive. They've come up against a Russian enemy, which relied heavily on tanks and limited aircraft, but uh, they've proven very adept at using unmanned systems in the air and uh, anti-tank and other kinds of precision weapons on the ground to destroy both air and ground targets. So they've frustrated the typical Russian effort to hit them with large amounts of firepower. However, there's no defense against the Russian missile attacks, which are precise and go very deep. So even the bases where some Americans have gathered to try to help the effort, volunteers, have been attacked and people have been wounded or killed. It's made for a very messy conflict. And in this case, the success of uh, Ukrainians has made the world and Mr. Zelensky think that there's a likelihood they can win, but then you can't really define winning unless in their mind, they simply eject the Russians from the Donbass and Crimea, which is not likely to happen given the status of forces. Meanwhile, the Russians now appear to have to settle for what they probably should have done in the first place, seizing the Donbass and uh, the land bridge that Mark described, and then moving on from there, solidifying their hold on the Crimea, whether or not they can gain any more of the Black Sea coast is a question to me. And then uh, likely what Mr. Putin wishes to do is over the course of time, if he lives, influence the regime in Ukraine to become more friendly to Russia so that he has mostly a friendly buffer state with only some things that are attached to Russia, that area of the Donbass, the land bridge, and so forth. And the reason for the land bridge is in order to travel from the Donbass to Crimea, one must drive on the eastern side of the Sea of Azov and then go across a long bridge to get to Crimea. Otherwise, one has to drive through Ukraine. So the reason for the land bridge, including Mariupol, is so that they can have a strategic approach on land to Ukraine that is Russian territory. And that bridge will need to be wider than artillery fire and possibly three or four times that of artillery fire. At most artillery range, ranges no more than 50 kilometers. So you're thinking 150 kilometers deep. That strip isn't going to be just a thin 20-mile piece of land, although perhaps through negotiation it might be. We're going to see some interesting things. Meanwhile, Mr. Putin can't afford to drop the toys because if he does, he probably loses face and gets taken out in a coup. He's trying very hard to avoid that. So we're where we are, and now we'll move on to the next question, which is the matter of Russian war aims. I'm going to ask that then of Mark Mitchell. Mark, what do you think the, the Russian war aims are at this time? Thanks, Roger Doug. Um, I want to I want to just briefly touch back before I answer that question on your on your comments uh, about the uh, the Russian forces and and the land bridge. And if my memory serves me correctly. Um, the the bridge from the eastern side of uh, the, the Crimean Peninsula and the Sea of Azov, if you go back uh, several years ago, it had major structural problems, and you know so it, which I think contributes to the Russians' desire to have a land bridge 
and not have to rely on a literal bridge to to get to the Crimean Peninsula. And and I, so I, I again going back to my original comments, I do think at this point um, Putin's war aims have been reduced. His original war aims were pretty grandiose. Uh, I think a he envisioned a rapid seizure of Kiev, a uh, overthrow of the existing government, uh, probably the arrest and incarceration of Zelensky, the installation of a puppet regime, and the um, incorporation of the Donbass and parts of eastern Ukraine into a, a, a um, Russian-controlled state. And it, clearly, the, the seizure of Kyiv has failed. And now I think his, his, his war aims, his principal war aim, number one, is to, uh, to con- keep control of the Donbass and to establish that uh, land bridge uh, to the Crimean Peninsula and secondly, to inflict as much uh, political, economic, and humanitarian um, uh, damage on Ukraine and its armed forces. And depending on how things go in the Donbass, we you know we could see him try to in Russian forces try to a uh, um, envelop or cut off. Uh, large numbers of Ukrainian forces east of the Dnieper River and c- cause a, a mass surrender. Um, I still think that's a, that is a stretch goal, if you would say, um, for Putin, but uh, certainly not, um, not out of consideration at this point. Thank you, Mark. Ambassador, then over to you. Ranger Doug, uh, here's a thought and a question. When was the last time that Russia or the Soviet Union had a successful ground campaign? And I don't want to hear Chechnya because when they were flailing and failing in Grozny, they resorted to basically reducing it to rubble with long-range fires and aviation. Ditto for Syria. You could say Georgia it was very quick, in many respects, resembled the performance of the U.S. forces in Grenada, which was, you know, we, we, we won because there was no way the Cubans and Grenada were going to hold out very long. It was this mass, and that's what happened in Georgia. So bottom line, you know, since World War II, Russia, which uh, conducts exercises uh, with each of its four major command areas every year, including Zapad, as recently as, as September 2021, Apparently, the Russian military convinced themselves that they were more than capable of deploying large numbers of of troops, vehicles, uh, and doing a combined arms uh, assault on things. So uh, they've been caught with their pants down. I suspect there's going to be uh, massive turnover in the general staff, the ones that are still alive after, you know, I think four or five or six have already been killed on the front and several others have been replaced. Um, but what is it that Russia wants right now? After South Ossetia and Georgia, you know, back in, was it 2008? I assume that Putin's long-term goal was to control as much of the Black Sea as he could. 
And at the time, you remember, Armenia was very much a close ally or, or at least uh, somebody who relied heavily on Russia and Moscow against Turkey, kind of historical enemy. Of my, my enemy is my friend. And then much of Georgia under Russian control in the northern part, and then grabbing Crimea, and they still have that problem with Lambridge, uh, you know, and they didn't control all of it, which is the, the current objective minimum is that they have to own that one. And so there's no more issues there. And I think the next step for him is he's thinking he wants to push his control of the Black Sea coast all the way to Transnistria and then do his best to intimidate Moldova so that now he's got three NATO countries on the other end of the southern side of the Black Sea, Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey. So I think that was his long-term goal. He figured that by shock and awe, like the lightning thing, because his intelligence community assured him that the Ukrainians were not really Ukrainians. They were Russians who had just forgotten they were Russians and it would be a walkover. That is cold water. So currently, with Kiev not in the pictures, as Marcus said, you got to look at calendar and you have to, and you said this earlier, you have to think about face. So Putin right now and the Russian military have lost face. You know, literally the entire world is either laughing at them or taking notes of, hmm, apparently not as, you know, they're not 10 feet tall and they are vincible. They can be beaten. He's got victory day in Europe. I can't remember if that's May 7th or May 8th. I know the Russians celebrate a different day than we do. He needs to parade some prisoners and some war trophies and be able to declare you know, that he's a mission accomplished. So I think uh, he also understands that all the weaponry that has been flowing from countries friendly to Ukraine into the country eventually is going to make it out east. So he knows he's got a limited window. I like what he said about getting to the Dnipro River, maybe trapping as many Ukraine units. Guess what? And we'll talk about what the Ukrainians are up to is they've been planning for this one since 2014. This is not going to come as a surprise to them. I guarantee there are prepared positions out there. I have no personal knowledge of it. I'm just going to go on the assumption. They've seen this day coming. It's going to be very different uh, terrain. So Putin thought he was going to roll into Kiev. Didn't happen. Now he's got to settle for, he wants half a loaf is better than none. And if he can declare, well, what we really wanted to do was distract the Ukrainians so we could grab the eastern part of the country. Yeah, da-da, and we declare victory uh, and we have a parade. That's great. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Mark, over to you. There's so much there. I I do think the ambassador is right in terms of the uh, preparations that the Ukrainians have made. This is... You know, since the seizure of Crimea, this has this has not been a surprise to them. Um, there are some real challenges uh, that they could face in the Donbass, and you know the the um, eastern Ukraine has been compared to the terrain of Kansas, where you know they could uh, theoretically operate in a blitzkrieg style you know t- typical uh in, you know in a style that was um embraced by the soviets lots of artillery uh rapid advances using tanks and motorized infantry to seize terrain um <clears throat> the first thing i would offer is that I, i'm not sure that the Russian armed forces of 2022 are capable of integrating all the elements of a combined armed advance in that manner. Um, the ambassador mentioned exercises, and you know there there is a real substantive difference between the exercises 
that European and uh, Western forces conduct and those conducted in authoritarian or totalitarian states where nobody wants to get bad news, nobody wants to look bad, and <clears throat> the exercises are always successful. Uh, any, anybody that served in the United States Army or Marine Corps and participated in a, a exercise at one of our training centers knows that the good guys don't always win. And sometimes we get our ass kicked, uh, pardon my French, for uh, badly, but that's, that's what training is about. And so I, I do think there's a, a, a very large question, uh, irrespective of Ukrainian uh, preparations, of uh, whether the Russian forces are capable of executing the type of offensive and what is going to gain them beyond the, um, the confines of the populated regions of, of eastern Ukraine, uh, where they've already enjoyed a, at least a modicum of support uh, from Russian-speaking populations in the Donbass. Um, and, and then uh, I would just also add that the influx of Western support, whether in the form of uh, anti-tank missiles, um, drones, the Hero 120 uh, type loitering drones and artillery um, and also potentially tanks, helicopters and fighter aircraft uh, could, uh, again, tilt the, the, the battle towards the Ukrainians because they don't have to defeat and expel the Russians. They simply have to hold ground and inflict casualties um, on Russians to increase their strategic costs. So lots of factors in play as the focus shifts from the uh, from central Ukraine and Kyiv um, to the eastern portion of Ukraine. Over. Thank you, Mark, and thank you, Ambassador. I, I have to say that as a second lieutenant, I was often referred to as Lieutenant Donbass, and I only learned tonight in listening to Ambassador Butler that I might have been being called that because I resembled a province of Ukraine, so I feel much better now. <laughs> You're much better looking than that. I have a face for radio, which is why we only do radio. A couple things. Uh, Ambassador, you, you asked me when the last time they were successful in a campaign, and I mean, I think we can say that they were successful in Czechoslovakia and Hungary. I think they also were successful in Afghanistan in the sense of they did a brilliant operation. They ran the country remarkably well for 10 years. They did have to leave, but they only lost 15,000 people, and we worked our butts off to try to kick them out of there. The sad thing for the Russians is that in this action here, they've lost more than they lost in that 10 years. So while they left Afghanistan because the Soviet Union itself was basically beginning to fall apart, and it wouldn't be long before they broke up, uh, the West really didn't know it was happening. We were oblivious to it. If you really want to know, uh, and you were asking about this, I believe, when the Soviet Union really won a war, it was World War II. But then if you take away the logistics, the money, the aircraft, and all the other things that we supplied them with, including tanks, and they weren't as good as the tanks the Soviet Union could make itself, but when you have tanks that can do various things against infantry, even if they only have light armament and small guns, they still can take on those tasks that allow the Russians to use their captured 
German tanks that they were very successful with, their T-34s and their Josef Stalin tanks that they had made that were one of the, well, two of the most uh, powerful tanks of the war. But they took several years to get into the speed of war. They had killed all of their maneuver generals. They had brilliant generals a part of the general staff, but they were all massacred by Stalin before the war, including the inimitable Tukhachevsky. Meanwhile, Zhukov had won a critical battle against the Japanese at a place called Kalkengol, or as we know it by the Japanese name, Namanhan, in the late 30s. And it convinced the Japanese that while they had made a quest to get into Mongolia and Manchuria, they were shocked that having defeated the Russians under the empire in 1905 in the Russo-Japanese War, that they got whipped so badly, they turned and went into the Pacific and attacked us at places like Wake Island, Pearl Harbor, and the Philippines, and thus initiated World War II in the Pacific. Now, by fighting World War II in the Pacific, we actually also uh, kept sea lanes open for world commerce eventually and allowed, as we drove the Japanese back, the Russians to receive some relief. The Germans thought the Japanese would help them. We supplied the Russians through many different ports, we, the English, and others, and had their logistics not been kept fresh and new, they'd have had this maintenance problem. But the main thing was Zhukov proved himself to be the absolute best at maneuver warfare. He led the effort to win at Stalingrad. He led the effort to win at Kursk. He pushed through Kursk in in Ukraine to lead the effort to take Berlin. And by getting to Berlin first and taking it, they lost several hundred thousand men. We would never have been able to take Berlin, except if we'd gotten there first, Berlin might have surrendered to us without a fight. It just didn't happen that way. We had got to Berlin. We sat and watched. Then we traded some of East Germany to the Russians to get a slice of Berlin, and that went the way of the war. I predict that some of these things will be seen here. In other words, the trading of certain space to uh, aggrandize the Russians with some of their objectives, but they'll give back some terrain perhaps to Ukraine. But also, they have no, the Russians have no Zhukov. And they haven't had the ability to become, as a nation, infuriated by the Germans or whomever. They're now attacking someone in their country. The, the Soviet public is dismayed at the loss of people, but they really haven't got into the swing of the war at this point. So I believe Putin's war aims are, yes, and we've said this many times, secure the land bridge, secure the Donbass, and continue to hold Crimea. Whether he can extend beyond that, I don't know. The key thing is, to me, is Putin acting on his own or is he acting at the behest of China? Because as Dean Cheng has said on previous programs, it seems that Putin only attacks during or after the Olympics and twice when Olympics were in China. And there is that possibility then that as China begins to uh, uh, move into the resource-rich Siberia and other places, that it's actually interested in taking pieces of Russia a little bit at a time. And this is something that drives Mr. Putin to try to make a show on the world stage. Well, it hasn't happened. And unless something new happens, I believe, yes, he's lost a lot of face. His aim is to recover what he can and try to hold on, consolidate and consolidate his power back at home if he can. And that is a question. It's a big question. But the next ruler in Russia will not necessarily be any better because they'll go through a standard Russian combative aspect to replace Putin. And it may be the person that comes along may be better at certain things. Putin had no military experience. As a KGB officer then, he probably looked at different ways to keep control. He operates through his Siloviki, the people that run his security services, who are also billionaires. And uh, as the richest man in the world, he's watched his fortune be frozen. So there's a lot at stake for him here. So his aims, I think, are, as you say, consolidate, hold, and move into a next phase. And he can always come again, as one of our panelists said last week. He can always come again. And the Ukrainians need to know that. So that ends this round. We'll pause now for a commercial. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hey. 
Help wanted. Men, women, and children. Nature of work, hard, monotonous, back-breaking labor. Hours, 75 a week minimum. Pay, few cents an hour. Added inducement. Two meals a day, including several ounces of bad bread and a cup of thin soup. Don't delay. Apply at once. How'd you respond to a want ad like that, Mr. and Mrs. American working man and woman? You'd laugh, wouldn't you, and throw the paper in the trash basket. Dismiss the whole advertisement as some kind of a joke, but believe me, it's no joke. It's a simple statement of the working conditions that exist today in Nazi Germany and the conquered countries under Nazi rule. It's also an exact statement of the working conditions that will be imposed on you and every member of your family if the Nazis win this war. You yourself personally can stop them from winning, as you know. You don't have to give up your well-paid job to do it. You needn't have to be a soldier or a sailor or an airman or a nurse or a war worker to ensure American victory. Uncle Sam doesn't ask plain, ordinary, hard-working citizens like you to give him anything. All he asks, all this he does ask very seriously and very urgently, is that you loan him ten cents out of every dollar you make. That's all there is to it. Lend Uncle Sam a dime to win this war. And he'll pay you back with interest when he's won it. The easiest, most convenient way to lend him these dimes is to enroll in the payroll savings plan. Just tell your boss to deduct 10 cents from every dollar he pays you and lend it to Uncle Sam in your name. Sign up for this simple savings plan today and when victory comes, you'll have war bonds in your pockets instead of Axis bonds on your wrists. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. VDAC an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities, empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nife.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nife.org, and click on VDAC. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. On VBN, Veterans Broadcast Network. Here's your co-host.
Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. This is Ranger Doug on Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 24th program, our ninth program in the series, Russia Moves into Ukraine. And I have with me tonight wonderful guests, Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Mr. Mark Mitchell, and we'll talk further about things. So we're moving to another question, and this is to describe the war aims of Ukraine and, and Mr. Zelensky. And I will pass that question to Mark Mitchell. Mark, over to you, sir. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. I, I want to just... Uh, um, applaud your historical analysis and the follow-on uh, to Ambassador Butler's uh, questions about when the, the Russians have been successful in maneuver warfare. And I think it was a very, your very accurate analysis. As we move forward, um, I think that President Zelensky and the Ukrainians have uh, a, a renewed emphasis for continuing to resist the uh, the Russian um, uh, offers, particularly you know in, in some of the you know these peace talks, um, which I think have been frankly more of a kabuki dance. Um, the, the Russians were not seriously interested in offering anything, and and neither were the. Ukrainians, except in possibly buying time for humanitarian evacuations. And as time goes on, I think the Ukraine, yeah, as long as the Ukrainian armed forces <clears throat> remain in the field and remain um, willing and capable of fighting, I, I think the, uh, the Ukrainian government is going to become more intransigent in terms of uh, will being its willingness to accept um, anything less than a Russian withdrawal, and that that Russian withdrawal may be um, limited to areas outside the Donbass, um, <clears throat> but I, I do think the uh, with every passing day, um, unless there unless there is a dramatic shift in the strategic situation um, with every passing day, the Russians become weaker and the Ukrainians become stronger strategically. It's not saying they're not going to uh, encounter additional losses on the battlefield, um, particularly, uh, you know, civilian casualties, but it says that they're as more Western aid pours in, um, and to the extent that they're able to integrate it, and that's a that's a whole um, separate conversation. I'll just say, you, you, Ukrainians have a um, a diverse um, logistical challenge. They have, you know, uh, former Warsaw Pact uh, weapons. They have NATO standard weapons, and and now you're seeing a mixture. And to the extent that they can both sustain and integrate all of those um, various weapons effectively, um, they gain strength with that each passing day that the Russians don't achieve their strategic aims. So I think as time goes by, uh, assuming no major changes in the strategic situation, you'll see the um, Ukrainian ambitions grow bolder, not simply limiting 
their Russian incursion, uh, but in fact, eventually rolling it back. And I'm lo- I'm looking on the time time scale of years and not months. Over. Thank you, Mark. That was great, Ambassador. Then over to you. This is where I'm. You know, I'm in violent agreement with. Um, uh, with, with Mark uh, in his analysis, um, and I, I could add to it uh, in a way that what Putin has succeeded in doing for Ukraine is giving them a clear road towards a formal association with the European Union. And it's ironic that this whole mess starts back in uh whatever year it was uh when the pro moscow prime minister decided to disregard uh a a a plenary vote inside ukraine where they wanted uh they wanted a, a trade agreement a closer relationship with brussels and this being the european union brussels not nato brussels um and uh and and the former prime minister rejected it and this led to the orange revolution riots in the streets uh and then a change of government uh which there is a narrative that that russia has pressed here in the united states and i've seen it much to my dismay and sadness in uh, otherwise you know well-meaning americans that this was a cia sponsored coup a la you know chile allende iran back in the 50s and stuff like that this was an authentic um expression by ordinary ukrainians that they saw a better future with a, a closer economic and political relationship with the european union which is not a military bloc I mean, they have aspirations but they're not which was going to pull them further away from moscow's orbit so you know, congratulations, Vladimir and Putin, and your uh, and, and your advisors, um, because because uh, up until uh, two months ago, n- there were no EU countries that were prepared to offer Kiev a fast track to a a closer relationship to the European Union, and that has become a reality. Um, so for Vladimir uh, Zelensky, the you know the current president. Uh, the leader uh, who, who's emerged as you know as as the most admired man you know on the planet in the year 2022 so far. Uh, just remember, a week in politics is a long time, so things can change. Uh, right now, he is attempting to capitalize on that to get the the military assistance to sustain his forces, so that in a worst case scenario, as they lose a little bit more of the east. Uh, maybe you know Mariupol is all like you know, Mariupol is going to go. There's not going to be nothing left because the Russians are, are going to destroy it all. There'll be thousands of dead, dead Ukrainians there, uh, and this this will I'm sure that Kiev will 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 use the sacrifice to maintain the the narrative high ground, which Moscow has ceded to a much smaller and less capable country. Uh, their war goals right now is to fight this to a stalemate. Um, I don't think they, I don't, I honestly don't know if they think that you know, if when Russia says, okay, enough is enough, we've got, we, you know, we, we've gotten everything we came for. Uh, and you know, and it, they, they decided to declare victory whether Ukraine agrees uh, and doesn't go on the offensive to try and take back what they've lost. That part, I don't know. Um, that's going to be in the, that's in the back pocket of, Ukraine's policymakers and their diplomats. 
their prime minister today said, or foreign minister today says, you know, they're still open to a a a, a peaceful diplomatic solution. Um, you know, are they prepared to accept the permanent loss of a third of their country? Finland did in 1945, and I'd actually like to go back to that one and pick up uh, uh, Ranger Doug. You said something earlier about the uh, uh, Russian generals who were who were all murdered in Stalin's purges uh, prior to World War II. Um, the next purge uh, that came was uh, the generals who 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 failed uh, to conquer Finland in 1939, 1940, and went to war. Uh, and that war, by the way, cost uh, Russia close to a million men. Think that one through. A, a million men died you know, on the Finnish front. Um, those were those guys were taken out and shot. Uh, and the ones that, that, you know, and then and then their replacements are the ones that then Marshal Zhukov and others uh, who took the lessons of, oops, you know, that was a small country prepared to defend every inch of his territory. But Finland at the end of the day was overwhelmed by by, you know, the numbers were against them. Uh, they saw the handwriting on the wall and they cut a deal at the end of World War II uh, where they gave up 10 percent of their country, lost their access to the White Sea, uh, the, the Arctic Ocean uh, and, the, and, 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 and the Kola Peninsula, which they had at one point, had to resettle 10 percent of uh, all, you know, the population that was in Karelia moved into it and then pay reparations to Moscow. You know, that was their price for maintaining their independence. This is going to be very different for Ukraine because they will have maintained their independence and, and fought the Russians to a standstill. And the number right now, because uh, they're broadcasting it, it's just, you know, I know there are people that are not happy that they're putting, you know, pictures of, of dead Russians up and, you know, and then parading uh, captured Russians. You know, the Geneva Convention is just supposed to treat, you know, folks fairly and stuff like this one. Um, it, it is possible that the Russians have lost, as you as you uh, intimated, uh, uh, upwards of 20,000 or more men, uh, which is going to be a major hit on a country that's had a declining birth rate uh, for the last 20 years. Well, thank you, Ambassador. And yes, I agree. Uh, if they haven't reached 20,000 yet, because that is a number that's out there, they soon will, because it doesn't seem possible that in the next phase, they're going to do it with precision and avoiding their own casualties, nor will they avoid casualties among the Ukrainians. I think at this point, they don't really have uh, the Ukrainians I'm talking about any choice but to continue to fight until someone can show both sides an off-ramp. And of course, we'll talk about that when we get to ceasefires and peace uh, discussions in the later phase, but there isn't anyone really available to that right now. I would mention, though, as a matter of trivia, it's not trivial really, but I mean, it's interesting information that two people we're both very familiar with, in fact, friends in sense. Uh, in one sense at least, Victoria Newland and Christia Freeland of Canada are both Ukrainian descended. Whether that means anything in this milieu, I'm not sure. But it is interesting to note that these two prominent women, the Deputy Prime Minister in uh, Canada and our own Undersecretary for Political Affairs, whom both of us have worked with before, as many of us do, we feel very excited when something happens in our family's familial homeland. I know my my wife is Irish. She gets very exercised about anything about the Irish, including Notre Dame. Moving forward, I don't necessarily think that there will be any real talk of peace until you might call them the benefactors of these two countries, China and perhaps other international organizations, other countries can convince the two to sit down because they're really only going to end up with what they had in the in the beginning. Russia had already occupied these territories except the Strip with proxies. Now it wants to formalize by seizing. Ukraine wants to resist that. There, there seems to be to be a developing situation where at some point the world needs to say, you need to stop this because all of us are suffering while you're fighting. 
I'm not sure that Mr. Zelensky's aims are along that line, but I think of the two, he's probably the most reasonable to accommodate that kind of thinking. And we might see him making some kind of move to which someone in the world is able to talk to Mr. Putin and say, uh, you really ought to think about this, or rather, you better think about this. Uh, that's all I have to say uh, in regards to that. We'll take another uh, commercial break and we'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour. We'll be right back. We know you have pride in yourself and in what your country can be. We know you have a brain and your own ideas. We know you'd like to share these ideas with hundreds of young men and women from all parts of this country. We know you'd like to further your education, learn a skill, have opportunity for advancement, and 30 days vacation a year. We also know you put a price on these things. The price is your individuality. And you question the Army's willingness to pay this price. Today's Army is willing to pay this price. We're committed to eliminating unnecessary formations, signing out, signing in, and make-work projects. In today's Army, you'll find more mature personnel policies at every level. If you'd like to serve yourself as you serve your country, today's Army wants to join you. For the location of your nearest Army representative, call 800-243-6000, toll-free. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. Welcome back. Here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Your little boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Veterans Radio, our 24th program, our ninth in the series, Russia Moves Into Ukraine. And I'm joined by Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Colonel Retired and also uh, former Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, Low-Intensity Conflict and Independent Capabilities, Mr. Mark Mitchell. Uh, at this point in time, I would like to take this rather involved question and pass it to Ambassador Butler. 
that would be take a look at what we have going on throughout the world and what are the noticeable activities of and or effects on the U.S., NATO, the EU, the world, including the PRC, the UN, and other organizations, Any anything you wish. And of course, with your vast experience, I know you'll have a lot to say about that. How about taking a crack at that, Ambassador? Ranger Doug, thanks. And I'm going to be more compact than I normally am, and I'm not going to go the order uh, you know, that, that I had originally jotted down. I'm going to start with NATO, European Union. Russia, with its so-called gray zone, hybrid, asymmetric warfare, Gerasimov doctrine, it has many names. Had, has been waging uh, an information campaign against um, the transatlantic institutions. Not that the European Union is a transatlantic, but the you know the post-war uh, alliances uh, and 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 customs unions and and economic unions uh, that we helped either directly create or foster and supported, you know, since 1947. Um, and one of the one of Putin's goals has been, or his staff's goal has been, to drive wedges in NATO, in the European Union, and try and, and drive a wedge between uh, the United States, uh, the New World, uh, and and Europe. Um, I don't know if he thought that the ground was sufficiently prepared that there would be members of both the EU and NATO. Uh, who would break from the crowd. Uh, I'll, I'll name a name here, Hungary. And we've got one EU member uh, who just reelected a, 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 a seemingly pro-Putin uh, leader, uh, you know, very much out of step with many other countries. Uh, but Hungary stands right now as the outlier. And Putin has had the perverse effect of driving not only into a more cohesive posture, but also causing its members to increase the percentage of their their national budgets that they spend on defense. And this has been a goal of you know, you know, the last three or four administrations that I've that I've been part of, where we constantly are preaching at them, you got to spend at least two percent of your GDP uh, on defense. And very few countries in NATO have, you know, have, have achieved that, you know, kind of Greece and the United States are like, like the only two I can think of. Everybody else has been, and, and the Baltic countries, everybody else has been well below that. But guess what? Now everybody is spending money on stuff that I think Russia does not want them spending money on. The European Union has closed ranks uh, because now they're dealing with an influx of 5 million refugees. Uh, uh, and, you know, they're providing, you know, they're probably the main source of humanitarian assistance uh, and they're they're fast tracking a relationship. I don't think that Ukraine's ever going to be a full member of the European Union, but they'll have associate status, which is going to be like the, the next best thing. Um, so it's kind of like, OK, congratulations, you succeeded in, 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 in helping the UK leave the European Union um, and you have a couple of, you know, sort of countries that are, shall we say, somewhat sympathetic to Putin for whatever reason, nationalism or something like that one. Um, but everybody else is just kind of like, oops, that's it. You know, we, we got to put our defense, we got to put our, our dukes up and we and we got to keep our eye up because the wolf is out there prowling. It didn't go away. So so that was a, a major boon, uh, which is going to help us big time. Uh, I think on the U.S., um, our slow 
disengagement on the on defensive side from Europe that I I witnessed my time when I was in 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 um, uh, in Stuttgart. Uh, the first armored division left Germany and went back to the United States. They're you know they're down at Fort Bliss now in Texas. Um, we have we had like two brigades that were left you know, on the continent, uh, plus airplanes, plus some Marines, plus some special operations folks. But basically, you know, we were we were literally fading to black in terms of our our, our presence, our boots on the ground inside Europe. Well, that's turned around dramatically. It already in the last administration, in response to some of the things that Putin was doing vis-a-vis -vis the Baltics. Now is you know now we're back is you know and and this is going to be you know for how how long I don't know, but again if if I'm Putin I'm thinking oof I didn't intend for that to happen, uh, you know I may grab the eastern part of Ukraine but that boy uh, I'm now going to have to lick my wounds and uh, you know kind of you know have, hope my generals can figure out you know how to improve improve their next performance, but then worldwide. Uh, and I know I know you and I've talked a, a lot about China and Beijing and Xi and 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 their their you know how things will eventually sort out uh, between two countries who do not have demographics going in their favor. Um, you know, the PRC's population growth is going to peak pretty soon and it's going to start declining and getting old very very quickly. There's an economic factor there that's interesting, uh, but the rest of the world. Um, Four years ago, Putin was basically, you know, he was the, you know, the cock of the walk. He was the rooster. Um, he showed the Middle East that you could, they could count on him to keep them in power. You know, Assad is still uh, the head of, you know, the president of, of Syria, uh, despite everything, because Russia came in and, and, and held it for him. Uh, whereas, you know, we have a reputation in the United States of, you know, walking away if we don't like a country's, um, uh, abuse of human rights or, or going away from democracy, you know, you know, we, we'll punish you, you know, we'll, we'll pull aid or we'll pull troops out or something like that. Um, so Russia, the, you know, the, the partner you can count on, the United States, maybe not so much, depending on what happens in, in your own country. What that narrative has changed. If there was a country uh, in the Middle East or Latin America or out in maybe Asia, who was thinking that you know partnering up with Russia is really going to help us maintain control or dominate our region? Wow, you know you, you need to start thinking twice. Maybe the Wagner Group can go to out in the desert of Mali and murder you know three to four hundred people and get away with it. Um, but if you're talking about the Russian military, maybe not so much. So um, I also wanted to throw out something else or something that uh, I would love to hear Marks Marks and your opinion on. Um, yeah, I, I'm a student. Everybody's they're all sitting around the ring taking notes about how the combatants are doing. And with Russia, we've all been taking notes, you know, for a while about, you know, you know the stuff they did in Syria, the stuff they did in Chechnya, uh, you know, how they went into, into Crimea, you know, their failure to take Kiev. They're all taking notes. But the one thing we haven't talked about were the failure of Russian um, uh, uh, weapon systems in Nagorno-Karabakh and the rise of the role of, of drones uh, as being able to negate uh, S-300s were killed by Turkish-built drones that they sold to the Azerbaijanis. You have to know that, that not just the Ukraines, but a lot of countries are paying attention to that. 
uh, I'm sure the Armenians are all thinking of like, oh, we relied on this Russian stuff and it turned out a, you know, a, a 10,000 or $20,000 killer drone, you know, beats, beats anything that, that Moscow. So there's a, there's a, there's going to be a perceptible shift out there of like, if you're buying Russian, you're probably buying crap, uh, and, and it's a loser. So Russia's stature in the world has diminished. And the question is kind of where we, the U S where we, where we can take advantage of that one by reestablishing our partnerships, uh, the military cooperation that we do, you know, 24 seven around the world uh, to be, you know, your partner of choice, uh, the one that, you know, you can rely upon uh, because, because what's happened in Ukraine is, you know, don't, don't give all the credit to the Ukrainians. They're the ones on the ground. They're the ones that are bleeding. They're the ones that are employing it, but they got a lot of help from NATO in training over the last 10 years and that's paid off. So I know there's people out there that are, that are, are taking notes and paying attention. The other you know, perverse thing is um, the very divided, our domestic political uh, landscape came together on the issue of Ukraine and Russia. You know, there, you know, aside from you know, a random state legislator from the state of Maine who thinks we shouldn't stay, we shouldn't get involved in it, on both sides of the aisle, you know, it's shoulder to shoulder. So again, it's kind of like, huh, uh, it turns out you need an external threat to cause us to put aside some of our domestic differences, you know, in, in NATO, in the European Union, here, here domestically. Uh, and I think we can thank our friend Vladimir Putin for that. Mark, what do you think? Thanks, Ambassador. Mark, over to you. Wow. To borrow a phrase for the ambassador, I will violently agree. I think there's there's two watchwords that when it comes to the effectiveness of forces on the battlefield, that we need to we need to always consider. And I would say there are integration and adaptation. And I think to a, a an exponential degree that um, forces under democratic leadership, uh, even even, nominal democratic leadership where there is a degree of freedom and innovation uh, and ability to experiment fare much better than uh, forces under authoritarian or totalitarian regimes, as we talked about earlier, where bad news is unwelcome and you, you know, failure it becomes a death sentence. And I think uh, what we've seen here, uh, again, going back to Nagorno-Karabakh and a lot of these situations is where uh, these forces have been able to integrate these new technologies and adapt them to the battlefield. Whereas uh, forces, uh, particularly in this case, the Russian forces are, despite their like new technologies, unable to integrate them and unable to um, rapidly adapt and respond to the you know this changing environment. And and so I, I do think the ambassador had a, had a real point about. Um, the impact of these battlefield losses on uh, the perception 
of Russian superiority. And in the end, you can have the greatest technology in the world, but if you don't have men and women on the battlefield who can apply it and apply it effectively um, and sustain it, you're never going to get there. And, you know, we saw in Syria with the, uh, the I mean, tremendous losses inflicted on Wagner Group and their Syrian proxies that the American forces were um, and are our Syrian partners were were much better uh, equipped to deal with it. The the challenges on this dynamic battlefield, and I think that's a a lesson that um, any any anybody who's really paying attention to what's happened should recognize with the Russians that free citizens are much more capable of dealing with it. Um, the, the other thing I would also uh, add on to the situation of Finland, and they, they you know, post-World War II, they may have suffered some indignities, uh, but Putin's actions have now driven uh, the, the Finnish parliament uh, to begin uh, discussing NATO and EU membership, which if consummated would be a tremendous strategic setback um, for Putin's overall uh, strategic aims. So um, I, I think by and large, the, the, the strategic situation worldwide has uh, for Russia has been um, uh, diminished by this incursion, which has exposed a, a lot of weaknesses, not just in their leadership, but their overall um, military prowess over. That's great, Mark. Ambassador, thank you very much. And Mark, you nailed what I was about to say. And then I can add to what you said regarding Finland. Mr. Putin is very concerned about NATO growing closer and closer to his border. And of course, if Ukraine was to be invited to join NATO and did, that would mean a NATO country to his west with a very extensive border. But if Finland becomes a NATO country and he's got a hostile state next to him in the remainder of Ukraine, he ends up with almost doubling the hostile border area that he will have to consider because of this one strategic mistake, in other words, doing what he's done here. And I think that what we can see here, unfortunately, as the world has become more refined and, and countries such as the Soviet Union or the America of the 40s has disappeared, where people actually develop uh, fights based on real sincere treatment of vital national interests. The United States had vital national interests in fighting in World War II eventually. It didn't think it would, but the conditions arose that, that President Roosevelt and the, and the Congress and the people decided it made sense to fight. The Russians had to be convinced of the same thing, and they were within about a year and a half that the whole nation had to come uh, to defeat uh, the, the Nazis. Uh, we, we don't see that here. And, and what what characterizes some recent conflicts that we've been uh, uh, observant of is that it almost seems to be vanity that drives some leaders to institute fights that would never have happened in the past, or at least we could think perhaps never have happened. Perhaps some of the uh, 
antecedents to World War I, for example, were brought about by individual leaders' vanity, since so many states were held in the person of one, such as the Kaiser in Germany. But still, to have that occur these days with this many casualties based on a war of vanity, uh, Putin's own vanity to want to secure himself, and as Dean Cheng said in a previous program, not only the brilliant observation about attacking around, during, or after the Olympics, but Putin's desire to reconstitute the lands of the former Kievan Rus, those Vikings that came down the Volga and settled Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Russia, and certain other parts of the various other Soviet republics that had Kievan Rus, not really to reassemble the Soviet Union, but just to do something less with those countries. Uh, we really have to wonder whether those aims produce uh, substantially good fights. And, and in fact, they don't appear to because there's, there's really nothing driving this fight except for Mr. Putin himself. Now, what it seems to me that the uh, Ukrainians need to do is to avoid arousing that Russian sentiment that might bring the whole nation of 140 million people against them. Now, while it still has a giant landmass, that 140 million is very small compared to what it had to draw on when it was the Soviet Union. So there's a large difference. And thus, also, they had the people in the line of Zhukov and Malinovsky and uh, Rokossovsky and Konyev and others who were fabulous generals and field marshals, they don't have that anymore. They have posers. And as a result, uh, they don't even have the commissars. They're not the communists anymore. So they haven't got control in the ways that they're normally used to doing. I would say that a number of things still have to be seen, and that is, uh, what is the status of China as we move forward? And what is the status of the United States in the war as far as does it lead or does it simply go along with a coalition? It appears that... Uh, we may very well be involved in something like that at some point. I would like to pause again for a commercial, and we'll be back in a moment. Thank you very much. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. I was 16 years old and my father allowed me to go. I was just turned 17 at the time. I was 16 and I was 15 years. When they came to us, they were frightened children and had to be made into soldiers. Well, boys, here it comes. We're in the pictures. <laughs> I gave every part of my youth to do a job. There was a job to be done. And you just got on and did it. During World War II, there was a battle on the home front, too. The tussle with ration books, tokens, and stamps. Supplies were short, and everything from shoes to gasoline was doled out. No stamps, no soap. Every cut of meat carried a certain point value. And many times, stamps were more valuable than money. And rationing proved that the American people had vivid imaginations. The Office of Price Administration was swamped with fantastic tales from people who claimed they faced disaster without an extra allotment of this or that. Headaches were many. Housewives had a problem keeping track of stamps. And businessmen sought clerks and other help in vain. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. 
like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. And here's Ranger Doug. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. This is our 24th program, our ninth in the series of Russia Moves into Ukraine. Tonight, I'm joined by Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Mark Mitchell, a former Army colonel recipient of the Distinguished Service Cross in Afghanistan, as well as a former acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations Low-Intensity Conflict, uh, 28 years in the Army, a good friend, uh, Ambassador and Mark. Uh, let's go on to the next question. The next question is, what's the status of any ceasefire or peace efforts? And I'd like to ask that question of Mark Mitchell, please. Thanks, Roger Doug. My gut says that the ceasefire... Uh, discussions and anything else related to it. They're simply tactical discussions at this point. What is going to allow the largest amount of civilians and, you know, to get out of the battlefield and reduce the casualties? But at the same time, uh, the Ukrainians have an interest in not completely abandoning areas for the Russians to move in and seize. And uh, I think it's significant that none of the defenders in Mariupol chose to accept the Russian ceasefire agreement. And I think we're going to see similar... um, intransigence on the behalf of the Ukrainians and unwilling to accept anything other than short-term tactical ceasefires. But I don't, I do not see at this point the uh, Ukrainians willing to accept any or willing to grant any major strategic concessions to uh, the Russians under the current circumstances. And again, you know, the battlefield's a dynamic place. You can never, um, you can never say never, but as long as uh, Ukrainians continue to uh, uh, present a, a coherent and effective defense of their terrain, and as long as Western support continues to flow in and that the Russians uh, don't make any huge strategic gains, you know, uh, operational level gains, 
uh, i.e. cutting off large portions of Ukrainian and capturing large portions of Ukrainian armed forces, I think the Ukrainians are going to be um, uh, ill-disposed to making strategic concessions to the Russians. And I want to just add on, we talked earlier about uh, Russia's relationship with China. And my personal assessment is that China views Russia only in the most utilitarian uh, lens. They have no real interest in a long-term true partnership with Putin and his regime or Russia. They see them only as a means to an end to the eventual domination that they seek. And every, every, every gain that Russia perceives from its relationship with China is going to be short-lived until China uh, feels themselves uh, able to exert more pressure and extract concessions. Over. Great comments, Mark. Ambassador Butler, over to you, sir. Yeah, Ranger Doug, I want to follow up on Mark's excellent insights on China and then go to the, to the peace thing. China needs Russian hydrocarbons, natural gas and oil, because China doesn't have any. China needs Russian and Ukraine wheat because China doesn't have any. Uh, and they're caught between a rock and a hard place right now in terms of China, you know, Russia you know, is, is a strategic partner. Uh, it's a counterweight on, 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 on their their Western side to the United States and NATO. Uh, they're delighted to see the amount of effort we're putting into countering, uh, countering uh, Russia. Um, I think this is the third or fourth time in my career that we've had uh, an effort to pivot to the Pacific um, upended by something that happens uh, by Russia. Uh, we, we keep forgetting that we, we, we can't pivot. We got to be able to do two things at the same time. So, you know, and they're taking notes uh, about how well Russia is doing against us or not doing against us because they're using that you know, for their own interests in the Straits of Formosa, Taiwan, uh, their own near abroad in the, in the, in the South China Sea and that periphery they have out there. So, so it, that's a complicated relationship uh, for them because they can't afford to alienate Putin because, you know, there goes oil uh, and they don't have a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of options that don't involve going to the Middle East. And that's a long way around. Break, break, uh, taking it back to, you know, the prospects for peace. The market is exactly right. There's no reason at this point uh, for Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to uh, agree to Russian terms, because Russia right now feels that they're in the driver's seat. You know, they're ma they've, they're massive forces. They're going to be moving um, up until at some point. Russia feels like it's achieved enough that they can say they can they can stop uh, and go for a ceasefire. And the thing thing Ranger Ranger Doug that is bothering me the most right now is that we're witnessing the worst violations of the law of armed conflict that I've witnessed in my lifetime. And I've seen a lot, and this is by far and away, indiscriminate shelling of civilians, targeting of civilians, 
the bodies that were murdered uh, by the Russians. Uh, I'm not. I'm not even sure if those were, were ethnic Russians. If they weren't another another ethnicity of which Russia has lots of when they left Bukha. Um, the, the International uh, Committee of the Red Cross, the folks that go around in the battlefield, look after prisoners and injured persons and, 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 and the dead uh, and civilians, uh, have basically been blown, blown, blown off, uh, like go away, stop bothering us. These humanitarian corridors, uh, the most recent one for, for Mariupol yesterday, uh, a couple of busloads of people got out, but you know, once again, the, the Russian, you know, the carefully negotiated agreement that you know, for a couple of hours, this quarter is going to be open and we won't shoot at you. You know, the Russians have violated that site over and over again. So it's a question of, I can't remember the last time Russia in a conflict offered a ceasefire and to sit down and negotiate. You know how how this thing ends across a bargaining table. I just can't remember a place. I mean, for them, it's. You win, you lose, and there and there there is there's no in the, in their lexicon there is no such thing as a tie. Uh, they go to they go to overtime and, until at some point they either declare victory or they 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 slink back and lift and lick their wounds. And so far they haven't had to slink back from any place except uh, Afghanistan, and they slunk back only after uh, what was the number 15, 17,000 uh, young young Soviets came home in, in um, body bags. Uh, and Russian babushka, babushkas wasn't just Russians; it was all the the, the uh, different republics that were there. You know, the mothers and dads and wives got tired of burying their kids, and you know, and 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 they realized the Russians came to the conclusion they were never going to prevail in Afghanistan. And I think Vladimir Zelensky, who is not a student of history as far as I know, but he's, he's, he apparently learns pretty quick, is paying attention that if he can inflict enough pain on Russia. Uh, and if you can hold on long enough for the economic sanctions we've put on Russia for economic pain to be felt by the average Russian, and, and now the truth is finally filtering in through the Russian population about how many of their boys are not coming home, you know, literally not coming home because they're being either left behind in the battlefield or they're being cremated. Um, so you start getting a domestic thing there. So this is going to be a test of wills. Um, who will blink first? If the Russians succeed in some kind of a massive break breakout, you know it can get behind the uh, the Ukrainian forces and envelop them, and you know like you know, like the, you know, the Falaise Gap, and we can you know trap them, and like you know you can all surrender or you're all going to die because that's what we're going to do. And 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 Zelensky says, okay, let's start talking. Uh, uh, I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think the Russians have the logistic capability to support that kind of thing based on you know their their pathetic performance uh, in attacking uh, in, in attacking Kiev. So okay, that's my take on it is now they're going to hold on because they think time is on their side if they can just hunker down and hang in there. And what is it, you know, sort of nothing succeeds like success. And, you know, and, and they are so emboldened by what they've been able to accomplish. Right now, Moscow is is their goal is they've got to break that this winning attitude and they got to show that, hey, we're going to win. Uh, we'll grind you down, and 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 our will to prevail is stronger than your will to resist. Over. Great comments, Ambassador, and I agree with what you're saying. I, I think, in fact, we're going to have to wait till the next phase opens to to see anything that might point a way toward an agreement. And a lot of that is based on whether the Ukrainians have the same success in the next phase as they've had in the first phase. In other words, if the Russians have to try some offensive actions and the Ukrainians have established themselves so that they are able to uh, attrit 
the Russians significantly. As I said, they, they lost 15,410 years in Afghanistan. They're at least at that now. They're going to be double that soon. And we will find out that eventually, if they lose in this second phase, there's the likelihood that, that there will be changes in the Russian leadership. Not necessarily Mr. Putin, but he would have to replace some of those that are principal assistants in the Soloviki. And he's also been taking after some of his oligarchs. And we may very well find that those changes create some disunity that results in other changes. But uh, I, I don't see anything really changing the landscape right now, simply because and I did say I thought we would see uh, some kind of talks within 30 days of a few programs ago, but that was before we were able to see the Ukrainian success that, that drew. And I made the comment at the time that just as no plan survives first contact with the enemy, uh, no analyst survives first contact once the war starts, and you'd be wise to couch your terms. By the same token, I'd like to throw one thing back at you just to ask your opinion on this, because we've heard a lot of discussion of it, but uh, it hasn't been covered much in the press since it was announced. The strategy of escalate to de-escalate, what would you think uh, would be the chances of Mr. Putin's uh, use of special weapons to create some kind of inflection point changing the nature of the war? or at least of the perception of the war. Ambassador, over to you. So, um, you know, Chris, they announced today uh, the test of a new intercontinental nuclear-capable weapon, Shamit, I can't remember the name of the, the particular thing, and Putin you know, did a, 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 a little rocket man, uh, Kim Jong-un, clapping his hand and, and, and leaping up and down with joy of like, all you Western countries, you know, don't you dare threaten us because, you know, we can take you out. At the same time, we made it public that we are shipping howitzers to Ukraine and providing training. And that is an escalation. And it appears that right now from our side, the NATO U.S. side, is that we are less intimidated by Putin's stamping his feet uh, and, and, and shrieking of, if you take one more step, it's going to be nuclear war. There many things that are true about Putin, um, a lunatic he is not, and suicidal he is not. And he well understands that he could go down in history as the guy that, you know, that, that caused the, the, you know, the end of Russia, you know, as, as a society, as we know it, uh, if he were to use nuclear weapons. But I think, I think I know where you're going in this one. What if he did a demonstration uh, of some kind uh, to kind of show what's in his armament and what he's capable of to see if that gets us to back off or if it causes uh, the government in Kiev to rethink their strategy of, you know, fighting to the last man uh, as opposed to, you know, you know, offering terms, which would be, you know, potentially very generous to Russia of like, okay, everything east of, you know, fill in the blank and, you know, we will, we will uh, renounce our claims to it, which is something Finland had to do. Uh, and as, as Mark Riley pointed out, uh, uh, he's, you know, we, we kind of skipped the intervening period that you've now, congratulations, you've driven both, both Finland and Sweden uh, into con actively considering joining, joining NATO, which is, you know, uh, you know, and the last thing Russia wants is another 860 miles uh, of its border with a NATO country, which is what Finland has with it. Um, but uh, uh, it, things turned out really, really well for Finland. It's one of the wealthiest countries on the planet per capita. It's one of the ha it is four years running the happiest country on the planet. 
and it's a country, despite the fact it's dark like hell for six months a year. Uh, it's a it's you know it, it's a place that Russians like to go to for vacation and spend money, which is you know which is you know not the case in, in most places in Russia. Um, so uh, it's an interesting question, and there 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 are many methods at his disposal if he really wanted to to up the ante. And then it, now it becomes of um, hey, listen, I just I, I see I see your your artillery, and I, I now raise you a you know boy fill in the blank. There's a bunch of things that you and I both talked about in the past, uh, and then he stares across over into Brussels and says your move. And at that point, you you know, he, he he I could see him counting on the fissures that he was attempting to drive into the cohesiveness of the of the Western alliances. Uh, perhaps it begins to uh, shatter. You know, the fissures begin to widen and suddenly there's wavering in terms of do we really want to go to the precipice to the brink of potentially nuclear annihilation or uh, other kinds of weapons of mass destruction that do not involve nuclear weapons, and there's plenty of them out there. Um, that that would I think could be a point where Russia, one of my one of my favorite lines when I talk to people is Russia is, is a gas station master masquerading as a country. I think somebody referred to it as a petrol state. Well, you know, it's got guns, it's got nukes, you know, and it's got, you know, and it is the most populous country on, you know, in Europe. Uh, of course, it spreads across to to Asia and the other side of the Urals. Um, uh, does he really want to go there? Because you know, Russia is like forever going to be a pariah state, and Russians are going to be pariahs, and they're going to be confined to their borders and. Boy, when, when the Soviet Union uh, uh, fell apart and the Warsaw Pact fell apart, boy, the Russians came pouring out to see what was on the other side, and they liked what they saw. Um, so this, I could see this causing serious discussion inside Moscow about, is this guy really serious? Because we are not threatening Russia. Uh, but if Russia did something really, really stupid, we wouldn't have many choices. I don't know. What do you think? I think that uh, most Russians understand that NATO is really defensive, but they're being told otherwise. I do believe that since Mr. Putin has used radioactive weapons and chemical weapons to eliminate enemies, uh, polonium and uh, Novichok, Novichok meaning new kid, the uh, very potent, better than VX binary weapon that was used in, in London, as well as was polonium used in London and other places. He's announced he really doesn't care about what weapons he uses. And so therefore, he's theoretically crossed the threshold. I would say I don't look for the use of chemicals necessarily because he doesn't really need to. But the use of a, a nuclear weapon as a demonstrator uh, burst perhaps over the uh, Black Sea or something like that. And at high altitude, so it does no damage. But just saying, you know, look what I can do and I'm going to do it to you next would probably create uh, obviously quite a quite a flurry of activity. So uh, again, I'm not suggesting that to Mr. Putin, but uh, it's one of those things he's announced. And I think that there's the possibility we might see that. Mark, you for a comment on that one? Thanks, Roger Doug. My gut says that the ceasefire uh, discussions and anything else related to it, they're simply tactical discussions at this point. What is going to allow the largest amount of civilians and, you know, to get out of the battlefield, 
and reduce the casualties. But at the same time, uh, the Ukrainians have an interest in not completely abandoning areas for the Russians to move in and seize. And uh, I think it's significant that none of the you know, defenders in Mariupol chose to accept the Russian ceasefire agreement. And I think we're going to see similar um, intransigence on the behalf of the Ukrainians and unwilling to accept any, anything other than short-term tactical ceasefires. But I, don't, I do not see at this point the uh, Ukrainians willing to accept any or willing to grant any major strategic concessions to uh, the Russians under the current circumstances. And again, you know, the battlefield's a dynamic place. You can never, um, you can never say never, but as long as uh, Ukrainians continue to um, uh, present a, a coherent and effective defense of their terrain, and as long as Western support continues to flow in, and that the Russians uh, don't make any huge strategic gains, you know, uh, operational level gains, uh, i.e. cutting off large portions of Ukrainian and capturing large portions of Ukrainian armed forces, I think the Ukrainians are going to be um, uh, ill-disposed to making strategic concessions to the Russians. And I want to just add on, we talked earlier about uh, Russia's relationship with China. And my personal assessment is that China views Russia only in the most utilitarian uh, lens. They have no real interest in a long-term true partnership with Putin and his regime or Russia, they see them only as a means to an end to the eventual domination that they seek. And every, every, every gain that Russia perceives from its relationship with China is going to be short-lived until China uh, feels themselves uh, able to exert more pressure and extract concessions. Over. Great. Thanks, Mark. I threw that out there because it's been reported in the press by credible sources that this is a possibility. I'm not the only one to say it. I refuse to try to mirror image Mr. Putin on an American perspective and what me, what we may think is proper. Uh, I believe that he really is in a, a sort of a last ditch right now, looking for things to stabilize his power. And I believe he feels very threatened. And as John Fenzel said on an earlier program, we know that in this uh, hagiography that he has produced of himself, he was terrified once by the story or the, the actual observance of a cornered rat. And uh, there are those who have said that he resembles one of those. I'm just laying that out there because I do believe that the ability of the nation itself to cross the boundary of using those weapons 
does remove some barriers that you and I observe. I would never want to trigger anything. I would have been looking to refine my approach, professionalize my forces, eliminate any corruption that might have resulted in the logistics problems. But the thing that strikes me as so interesting here is I think that the American army has not only been able to develop since World War II, finally, some of the best equipment in every arena. It works very well. But we also have developed this capability of our soldiers, especially through our use of NCOs, to become entrepreneurs at the lower level of those things that we we coin as the instruments of national power, the diplomatic or political, the informational, the military, and even the economic aspects. When we give them the tools to exercise in those areas through what we call PMESI PT, which is a great distribution of those four letters, dime, they never prove us wrong. And also, they they really truly become, as, as you were when you were commanding, the entrepreneur of violence, not only knowing how to dish it out, but how to do so in a measurable, targeted way to achieve the ends you want, almost as if you were a small-scale governing element attempting to get control of an area. The Russians haven't got the NCOs. They don't have the commissars. They don't have the national fury. I have the feeling that they're going to find themselves in dire straits in this next phase, and it may produce activities that we just haven't uh, thought of. So that's why I thought to introduce that here tonight. What I'd like to do now, then, is move to our closing phase and ask each of you uh, Mark first to make a closing comment on what we've discussed tonight and cover anything you wish or that you want to recap. And over to you, Mark. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ranger Doug. Uh, I, I think the uh, ambassador's uh, observations uh, are, 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 are spot on. I, what I would add is that, you know, in addition to, you know, Russia being a kind of a gas station masquerading as a country, they they are economically weak. This is what led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. And despite the great natural resources uh, of the, the Russian state, um, they haven't been able to move beyond that for a variety of reasons that we've talked about or mentioned. Demographically, they're in decline. They lack uh, partnership with you know um, real tremendous you know real economic partnership, and I, one of the things that we haven't talked about uh, tonight is the sinking of the uh, the Moscow, their flagship um, in of their Black Sea fleet. I mean that was a tremendous coup for Ukraine um, and a and if, even if you, you think it's only symbolic to you know to sink the Russian flagship in the Black Sea fleet sends a message to every Russian that they are vulnerable you know in ways that this the Putin regime has not heretofore admitted, um, when you and when you add in all of the ground casualties, and again, we don't have a true number of that, but we have a good sense that it's pretty significant. You add that to the uh, economic impacts of the sanctions that have gone into effect, and Russia is wrapped, you know, is a part 
what was already a pariah state is now soon to be not only a pariah, but a pauper state. And despite the fact of their that they possess WMD, I have a really hard time uh, and, you know, seeing circumstances uh, under which Vladimir Putin would employ uh, either chemical or nuclear uh, weapons, uh, even for demonstration purposes. And you know, Ranger Doug mentioned the, the use of, uh, of the Novichok and the polonium. It's one thing to do it on an individual level. It is a completely different issue to do it openly, unambiguously, and undeniably on a uh, on a grand scale through the use of a detonation of particularly of a nuclear weapon, even in a demonstration, um, would would so radically change. The calculus, not only the United States and its NATO members, but also I think uh, of the Chinese and any remaining countries that may have expressed sympathy with the Russians. So, um, I just think the the Putin regime is slowly being backed into a corner, um, and its only real option is going to be to you know and the current trajectory to accept the um, most modest of strategic gains, if anything, over. Mark, that's that's great. And thank you for those comments. I, I would also mention that I had the chance to observe the Ukrainians because they worked with us in uh, Bosnia, as did the Russians, as did uh, many nations. In fact, uh, it was quite the coalition of not only our NATO allies, in other words, allies being those countries with whom you have an official agreement, but our partners, those that we didn't have an agreement except for that which was concluded to bring them into the theater to provide forces for peacekeeping and other things. But the Ukrainians uh, received wonderful treatment. I visited them many times, and uh, uh, they were they were some of the most wonderful, capable soldiers, but also some of the best uh, people, men and women, that I met uh, throughout. It was just as if uh, they had sent their best. So they've been practicing these things with NATO and in support of operations in many places for quite some time. I think we take a bit from their initial work uh, with the Russians in the earlier part of the 21st century when they were surprised and a huge fire strike was able to reduce a couple of battalions. And it was a surprise because they were simply gathering. They hadn't done anything when the Russians attacked them for essentially no reason. And it resulted in them taking a huge bloody nose, but they apparently went to work after that to capitalize on everything they had done to that point and to get ready for something worse. And they've proven to the world that like the Slovenes in the beginning of the Yugoslav war, that they were incredibly ready to absorb this strike from Russia. It's just been amazing to watch. Ambassador Butler, then over to you, sir, for a closing comment. Richard, Doug, thanks very much for that. It's been an uh, inspiring conversation. Appreciate uh, your comments and Mark's. Um, I want to throw a couple of things on there. One thing that in my world, 40 years of diplomacy of dealing with people like Slobodan Milosevic and Sinn Féin and IRA leaders and uh, uh, assorted characters that you normally see on the walls of post office, um, uh, that Russia belongs to that group of cultures 
where face is a key characteristic of the society. Um, it's not true in the United States, uh, but it is very true when you get to Russia and you go to Asia. And one of the challenges we're going to face here is Russia has lost face in an effort to find off ramps or some kind of a, an accommodation that stops the fighting and then let the diplomats figure it out as you go forward. Uh, International commissions, United Nations hearings, Security Council, all the rest of that good stuff is what will satisfy Putin and Moscow's need to say they got what they came for and and not look like they lost. This is going to this is this is hard, which is why I do share some of your concerns that they might try to up the ante just to say, well, look, you know, you know, see, you know, they, they buckled, you know, they, they they gave in first, they blinked first. That worries me. Um, so that, that's one thought. Uh, on the NCO piece, that was the, I I would agree the, it, it, and this is my experience for the time I spent in Ukraine, the biggest contribution that the NATO partners gave Ukraine was helping them transform their military to an NCO, non-commissioned officer-led corps with the concept of commander's intent. Russian military does not have that, which is why generals are getting killed on the front lines because they don't have NCOs. They need to be in the front line to, you know, to tell their troops what to do because the troops, and, and we saw those interviews you know, of, of the Russian troops that were captured, they didn't know where they were. They didn't know why they were there. And they hadn't been briefed. Uh, they hadn't been led. They fell apart. Uh, while we were talking, uh, something popped up on my screen that there are intel reports right now that Chechen uh, fighters who were brought brought up to Ukraine uh, were believed to have killed um, Russian soldiers who refused to fight. Uh, so maybe 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 this is is Putin's answer uh, to how to how to motivate his um, his conscripts who signed up for one year and by the way their year is up really soon. Uh, who aren't willing to fight, uh, well, you guys, you can either fight or we don't have commissars anymore, but we have Chechens who are worse. Um, that's kind of an interesting thought. And, and the last thing I want, wanted to, to leave with you is in the battle for the high ground and the narrative, right now the Ukraines own it. And the best example was um, they released a postage stamp. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. But it, it depicts one of those Russian, sorry, one of those Ukrainian Marines who was on, you know, the, the, the aptly named Snake Island, who when told to, uh, uh, I think it was the Moskva, uh, you know, it sort of directed them to surrender, you know, answered, answered back with a more crude version of what the 101st told the Germans uh, in Bastogne. Uh, so there's a silhouette of, of a Ukrainian Marine extending his middle finger to the Moskva, uh, it, you know, has, that has now sold out, you know, it's like, okay, you know, that's just, I don't know who came up with that one. That's just genius because it, it, it feeds the narrative and boy, it's not making Moscow any happier. So the biggest concern I have is that this does not get out of hand that, that, that Putin doesn't think if he tries someplace else to go, uh, he might take, uh, you know, he, he needs a victory. If I can't get it here, I'll grab, I'll go grab another piece of Georgia. Uh, you know, I'm going to do something else someplace else just to, just to track. So here are my thoughts on it. So, uh, this is a battle of narrative, uh, right now, Ukraine and the West, you know, have the high ground, 
can we hold it? Uh, and then can we find a way to let the Russians off the hook? And that's all, all for me. Well, Ambassador, I have to tell you that I have seen that stamp, and I agree with you. That fickle finger uh, is quite the inspiration. And uh, having used it myself several times in key uh, activities, I can tell you it, it can work. The uh, thing that I would like to close with is uh, it's been a real pleasure having both of you uh, with us. You are two professionals that I, I really respect. You've brought so much to our country. You've brought that same thing to our program, and we can't thank you enough. There really isn't much to say at this point because we've just begun this next phase where the Russians and the Ukrainians are going to be contesting to try to gain a new piece of narrative. And uh, I did mention the aspect of uh, the Russian people becoming aroused, but the Ukrainians also are, are very dangerous. And I would say to anyone who would listen, uh, just as we've heard in, in several movies, or books that we've read, beware of the fury of the Ukrainians. And I, I think that uh, what what's happened to them over the last hundred years is not well known to our people. I know it. I have friends that are Ukrainian. They tell me about it. They've always told me about it. And uh, all they wished to do was to be left alone and have a chance to try to find a way to prosper. As a republic, obviously, as the world says, a corrupt one. They were working through a lot of problems to this point. They were involved in the impeachment of our president. They're still involved in questions regarding the current president. It's a very sad situation to be tarred with these kinds of things when you appear to be a very virtuous country when it comes down to the point where the rubber meets the road. And they have demonstrated an unbelievable amount of fortitude and adeptness at diplomacy, as well as at manufacturing and maintaining a good story, because the story appears to be bona fide. The thing that's most concerning to me is that these atrocities committed, it, it appears that many people can't seem to get to the bottom of them. They still want to say that perhaps in Bucha or Buka, it was the Ukrainians themselves that set up a false flag. Well, we really will never know. But this is a cautionary note for our own American forces that when you get in involved in a conflict like this, you really have to have a very excellent political and media strategy and an idea of activities that you need to be prepared to assume when the fighting starts, because the fight can transition from bullets to words. And if you aren't prepared to capture the high ground in the words, you can lose the fight that you think you can win with the bullets and the artillery shells or the planes, the tanks, the ships and everything else. Because once people no longer believe what you're saying, for us at least, as a modern republic in the what we used to call the first world, you can lose a lot in a fight like this without losing the tactical portion of the battle. A cautionary note for us moving forward. Once again, I want to thank our guests, Ambassador Lawrence Butler and Colonel Retired Mark Mitchell, also the former acting Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, Low-Intensity Conflict, and Independent Capabilities. Interesting to note that Ambassador Butler's father received the Distinguished Service Cross for his actions near the Chosin Reservoir as part of the 3rd Infantry Division, Rock of the Marne, in the Korean War. He also, though, was killed in Vietnam as a lieutenant colonel. Mark Mitchell, coincidentally, received the Distinguished Service Cross, our second highest award in the Army. It's called the Navy Cross in the Navy and the Air Force Cross in the Air Force. The CIA has its own award of a similar nature, but received that for actions at the Kalijangi prison in reaction to the seizure of that prison by over 400 Afghans and others, Al-Qaeda's and so forth, the place where John Walker Lind was recovered and where Johnny Michael Spann, the original CIA officer killed at the beginning of the war, was uh, killed in action. Great men emerged from that conflict. I know several 
and Mark Mitchell is one of those. Thank you again for listening. Please, if you have an opportunity, we're on 10 platforms. You're welcome to subscribe. That way you receive the podcast every uh, time it comes out. We're on places like Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, Apple, our own RSS feed. And we're generally out around six o'clock central on Saturday nights. So look for us then. We also have another program hosted by our friend Patrick Scroggin, medically retired Army aviator warrant officer who's grievously wounded in Iraq in an air crash when his in his own uh, attack helicopter, uh, lost his leg, has engaged in a heroic struggle to recover his life. He's done so brilliantly. He's now a super endurance athlete. He hosts a program for the Veterans Broadcast Network called Wounded But Not Broken. It's a wonderful program. He's got great guests. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks again to our webmaster, Mark Eli. Once again, thank you from the Veterans Radio Hour staff. And this is Ranger Doug out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. No one left behind.